This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. Outer Blue by Amundi. Welcome to Blue Convictions, market analysis and asset allocation views. Hello, good morning, good afternoon to uh, all of you uh, around that call. Thanks for joining us uh, at uh, this uh, new uh, conversation uh, that we're going to uh, focus on today uh, on the European development uh, of the crisis uh, and uh, in that field also uh, on the positions or the ideas we can have when it comes to equities and European equities in particular. Uh, today, uh, I am with uh, Monica, uh, our chief economist uh, and Casper, uh, the CIO uh, of equities at Amundi. I first hope that you're all um, and uh, that uh, your families uh, and beloved ones are in good health. Um, this being said, we're going to uh, start immediately uh, by a, a little, I would say, immediate comment of Monica uh, on a very hot topic, uh, which are the European uh, decisions that have been taken or that are still uh, being discussed. Uh, so Monica, starting by you, uh, this week was an important one for Europe. Uh, first, because there were, uh, I would say, uh, major steps that were taken by the ECB again. Uh, that, so that's one one question uh, on what have you seen and how do you assess the new uh, decisions taken by the ECB? Uh, and then, uh, can you give us uh, your views on the uh, outcome of the European Council, uh, outcome that is not completed, but where at least we can see some progresses? Okay, thank you and good morning uh, to everyone. Let me start with the uh, council decision because uh, uh, this eventually will be linked to uh, the uh, to the ECB. So uh, our assessment uh, on the back of uh, what has been uh, released is that some progresses are there, but as expected, not a major uh, break uh, breakthrough. The reason being that some political aspect needs to be uh, to be addressed. So uh, what has been validated yesterday is the 540 billion articulated into the EFM, the SURE, and the SURE and the EIB funds. Uh, they've been uh, agreeing on a framework, which is uh, the recovery fund, but still uh, there are uh, some uh, um, aspects that need to be cleared. So, uh, first of all, the status uh, of this recovery fund it is likely to be linked to the multi-financial framework for the 2020-27 uh, budget. Uh, the size and the degree of neutralization are still uh, unknown, and the Council asked uh, the Commission uh, to come back uh, with the guidelines uh, by the 6th uh, of May, uh, really uh, writing down a plan for these uh, recovery, recovery funds. Uh, the big political question is, uh, as I was saying, on the degree of neutralization, because on one side, uh, we do have uh, some countries, namely uh, the, uh, the, the Netherlands and the so-called rural countries, uh, asking for loans. And on the other side, uh, we had some other countries uh, that are asking for uh, for grants. But uh, why this is important? Uh, because with the crisis, we do have uh, some countries, uh, in particular the one that uh, would be most affected by the COVID, that will take on the debt of the uh, of the private sectors going into into default. So uh, this is how we will really wait on the on the public debt. And the idea 
of having the recovery fund addressing this new uh, new debt uh, is what uh, the, the countries would like uh, uh, to see. For, for a reason, the ECB uh, cannot monetize the uh, euro debt and any more than it can monetize the, the national debt. So this is when uh, the uh, ECB uh, enters into play. Uh, ECB uh, displayed no limit uh, policy that is key uh, in this uh, in this moment, and the ECB uh, seems to be ready to change uh, its own uh, operational uh, rules. So it has really the, the firepower, but it does not have. Uh, uh, it, it cannot be the real uh, um, game changer or actor in dealing uh, with this uh, uh, public debt and private debt. Uh, uh, creation. So this is why we need more uh, fiscal coordination. So how we see the uh, ECB? The ECB is uh, tasking the uh, volatility on the levels uh, of um, of uh, government uh, bond yields and on the spread. Uh, is trying to control the the, the shape uh, of the in the in curve. Is trying to address uh, the uh, liquidity issue, in particular uh, on the short end of the of the curve, to prevent the financial uh, conditions. And uh, the uh, PEPP is really uh, doing its job, and we do expect this uh, um, this plan to uh, expand further, uh, just because uh, it comes somewhat the uh, the peripheral spread in the market, but. Uh, with the uh, results uh, of the Council and the uh, Eurogroup, uh, really um, the market seems not uh, to be uh, confident uh, uh, on that. But again, let me stress the fact that these are the tasks of the uh, ECB, but it, it has a limited role in the forthcoming triage of the public and private sector uh, sector debt. This is what the uh, recovery fund uh, need, uh, need to address. Well, thank you, Monica. So basically, ECB is doing the job and we can expect more. Uh, and uh, I would say uh, on the fiscal side, uh, we're not completely there yet, but at the same time, the comments we can give uh, is uh, by definition, uh, if uh, we are looking back at uh, the previous crisis uh, at the European level, uh, it's always the same story. Huh? You need a number of uh, European councils uh, to land uh, on an agreement. Uh, and so far in all the previous crises, uh, an agreement was reached, uh, so maybe uh, we can also use the past to be a little confident in the future. Uh, I would like you to, to give us two elements uh, of comments uh, uh, based uh, on the European answer so far. Uh, so first, uh, we are expecting some uh, decisions uh, from credit rating agencies uh, when it comes to uh, Italian situation in particular, and I, I think uh, it is under heavy scrutiny of a number of investors. Uh, so basically, uh, do you think uh, that uh, there is uh, enough uh, on the plate so far to manage the Italian situation? That's a first element of comments that I think would be important. And second, uh, at Amundi, we've made a comparison between the uh, US answer and the EU answer. Uh, and uh, I would say so far, the general assessment of the market is that the US, both the Fed uh, and the federal budget are doing much more than uh, the uh, European uh, that Europe, um, but um, based on the analysis you did, uh, is this totally true from your perspective? 
So uh, let me address the uh, the first part uh, of the questions of the question. Obviously, if uh, we want uh, uh, to be uh, realistic in order to um, to address the sustainability of the debt in the peripherals and in the um, and initially in particular because this is what uh, the uh, rating agencies and the market uh, are questioning, uh, we need to look at the uh, debt to GDP uh, past level. The primary balance, uh, the the cost uh, the cost of debt, and the nominal growth. So those uh, would be uh, the the aspect that will be need, uh, that we'll need to uh, uh, look at in order to uh, to address the sustainability of the uh, debt to uh, GDP levels. On the uh, average cost of debt, this is uh, expected to remain uh, low uh, thanks to uh, the uh, ECB, uh, ECB action. As far as nominal growth is, uh, is concerned, it will really depend on the uh, lockdowns and the bouncing back uh, strategy. Uh, but uh, we do expect uh, um, this year to be a real pain uh, for the country, but then uh, to get uh, a rebound in 2021 with some uh, private uh, investment and public uh, investment being, uh, being back on the um, on the table. So obviously, uh, we tend to see the rating agency having to act in a highly uh, political uh, environment, because eventually this is uh, what we do. We do not expect uh, any uh, any movement uh, today. It would be uh, more uh, wise. Uh, from a political um, angle, but also taking into account that we will have more um, more um, visibility on the uh, real uh, real economy in in autumn, and likely there we can have uh, some uh, gradual uh, uh, gra- gradual uh, down down rating. But again, we don't. Uh, uh, see uh, the, the case uh, for uh, the uh, rating agency uh, to move down to uh, the uh, the uh, Italian uh, Italian market, but again, it will uh, depend uh, on the political situation on one side and on uh, nominal uh, growth in the other. When we compare uh, to answer the second part of your question, the U.S. package versus uh, the EU package, well, um, in terms of uh, Total size of the package towards uh, the uh, when compared to the GDP level. Uh, if uh, we have uh, the recovery fund and with the five five hundred forty billion now uh, validated by by the council, this is this is huge. Bear in mind that there are some uh, technical and ideological aspects that uh, really uh, differ the United States uh, of America from the euro. Uh, from the Eurozone, where we see some uh, progress, but it is really unlikely that we will end up with the United States of Europe, uh, if, uh, uh, if uh, you, you allow me to say. And this uh, obviously will uh, create uh, some uh, uh, delay in the, uh, in the path uh, through uh, the, the recovery and the, um, and the uh, packages that will be eventually implemented so that we will see some progress, some uh, incremental, some reaction uh, on the uh, euro front that by definition, by its architecture, uh, prevents uh, the uh, power, uh, powerfulness that uh, we do see in the, in the United States. 
No, thank you very much. I think uh, you're raising an important point. And by definition, uh, no one should expect some kind of a federal jump of the EU uh, uh, in the context of this crisis, for sure. Uh, and at the same time, what is interesting is that uh, when uh, you add up uh, all the things that have been done at national level uh, in Europe based on the guarantee schemes that have been uh, put into place in the different countries, uh, you end up uh, with a, a level, uh, I would say, of stimulus uh, within the economy uh, that is uh, so far comparable with uh, the United States and at the same time also uh, some safety networks uh, that make, uh, make probably are working better at European level and therefore that would limit uh, the uh, ice resist effect uh, on the economy uh, going forward. But we will have time to discuss yeah. that maybe uh, more in depth uh, for another call. Uh, so in this Jack, context... Sorry, uh, 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 sorry ahead, Jack, to interrupt you. Uh, if we look back what happened in history, it took uh, four years to President Draghi to implement the whatever uh, it takes uh, option. It took now four weeks for the ECB uh, to go uh, that road even much faster. So uh, if you want uh, to make a comparison, there, is, there has been uh, a noticeable improvement in terms of yeah, uh, flexibility and resilience. It's a good uh, it's a, it's a good metric to remember. Four years, four weeks, and maybe uh, now uh, coming uh, soon, four days. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, this being said, in this context, Casper, the European equities uh, are down uh, something like 20% year to date. Uh, there is as in all equity markets, a slow recovery from the massive dislocation we've seen in March. Uh, so do you think uh, that uh, the market has already priced uh, what is uh, the worst, uh, or do you see complacency uh, in uh, the European equity market at the moment? That's my first question. Good morning. Um, we're certainly navigating very rough waters over the past month, and I don't think we are uh, out of the storm yet, in my view. Um, what has been different, I think, to previous bear markets have been the, the speed of the drop and the subsequent rally uh, to land us at around 20%, as you mentioned, and also the associated uh, volatility. It's been, been rather extraordinary, to be honest. Um, so we think about the three cycles, we think about the cycle of the virus, the cycle of the economy and the financial markets. And I think where we stand today, to be honest, uh, forward visibility continues to be very low and the range of potential outcomes uh, continue to be wide. And the simple reason for that, of course, is that the economic forecasts and the forecasts we are making in our models are very, very sensitive to the length of confinement and the subsequent uh, path to demand recovery. So I believe uh, caution is warranted near term, uh, and I would expect volatility uh, to continue to be elevated. I mean, so there are different forces at play, right? So on the one hand, uh, we've had the, the sudden stop to the economy, uh, which is unprecedented, uh, three and a half billion people under some kind of confinement, macro deterioration across the board. Uh, demand collapsing for the companies uh, we are uh, talking to. Um, and on the other side, as Monica alluded to, these extraordinary uh, fiscal and monetary uh, packages of whatever it takes that are very positive for markets, and also I think growing signs that the virus might be peaking, which is also positive. So there's simply a lot of uncertainty. So to circle back to your question, equities have clearly derated uh, some opportunities are emerging, um, but I think it's fair to say that not only are 
Uncertainty very high. Earnings expectations have simply not come down enough yet. When we look at the earnings expectations that the market have, we continue to think that they are uh, too optimistic. So I think the path to recovery that you ask about, I think it will be slow. I think it will be uh, bumpy. Um, so I think there's uh, some caution warranted, especially as if there are some signs that some areas uh, light at the end of the tunnel is already starting to be priced. But I mean, having said that, uh, there has been significant uh, dislocations. Uh, so opportunities are emerging, particularly if you have a long-term investment horizon. And I think those areas for me uh, are around the, the cyclical uh, names with a good quality and solid balance sheet, where I think the opportunity will become more and more evident as the path uh, to recovery becomes clear. The final point I made is that I think longer term, it is worth remembering that the result of all of the things Monica talks about is ultimately a historic debt accumulation. Uh, and I mean, the bill has to be paid at some point. So ultimately, in a world of low interest rates, potentially some kind of debt monetization, uh, and I mean, some of these measures are very inflationary as well. I think longer term, the, the case for equities continues to be very, very strong and, and other real assets for that matter. But, but I think near term caution. Well, thanks, Casper. Thank you. And by the way, we will have uh, uh, to discuss further uh, about uh, what could be the scenarios for inflation uh, in the in the future. That clearly is going to be a, a key element uh, to assess uh, for investors uh, afterwards. Um, but um, maybe to echo uh, what uh, you've said uh, uh, and to put it into context, uh, Monica, can you tell us a little bit uh, what is your assessment of the Q1 earnings season uh, that has started? Uh, so what do you expect uh, in terms of earning recoveries, uh, if anything to be expected before uh, the end of the year? Yes, uh, thank you, Jean-Pierre. Uh, as you know, the uh, earnings are one of the uh, key or the key variable we look at in order to assess the real uh, um, economic path, even more than uh, GDP numbers, just because the market is more sensitive to uh, EPS than, uh, than GDP. We know that Q1 and Q2 uh, will be with that. Uh, the reporting season just uh, opened with nearly 40% uh, of the companies are reporting, both in, uh, in Europe and in the, uh, in the US. EPS revisions are uh, touching historical lows, but as Casper uh, was saying, we do think uh, still uh, the consensus is overly uh, optimistic so far. Uh, we've seen uh, poor figures uh, as far as the financial uh, sectors uh, and the cyclical uh, concern, uh, while defensive are coming uh, a, a bit a bit better. Uh, on our side, uh, as you said, the bad Q2, Q1, and, and Q2, the real unknown will be the second part of the year, uh, where we see uh, some uh, um, less pain in in Q3, just because uh, the uh, companies uh, will unlock. Uh, unlock down, so they will be back uh, on activity. Then it will really depend on the exit strategy. And in Q4, uh, we will uh, see uh, some uh, some further acceleration. All in all, for the year, in our baseline scenario, we do expect a minus 60% uh, EPS growth uh, to be followed by um, 
above 100% in 2021. Uh, this would be uh, driven by a base effect, uh, primarily, but in uh, 2021, EPS will be lower than, uh, EPS will be lower than uh, in the activity in 2019, given the lack of a pricing power, the increase in the restructuring charges or the uh, goodwill uh, depreciation. Well, thank you very much. And then, because it leads to another question, uh, because uh, I think um, one of the very strong calls uh, that uh, we used to have on European equities uh, at Amundi uh, was uh, to say that uh, we finally were strong believers that the value factor was going to come back uh, and uh, that uh, it was interesting to play the European equities, notably uh, if you want to, to play dividend strategies. Uh, and at the same time, we see now uh, that there are a lot of dividend cuts in many sectors. Uh, those uh, might be uh, because of uh, regulations, uh, because also of voluntary actions. Huh? Some companies considering uh, it's not appropriate to distribute uh, dividends for solidarity reasons, which, which by the way, uh, is the case uh, of Amundi uh, and Credit Agricole Group at large. Uh, so how does this uh, impact, uh, in a way, uh, the, uh, the initial call we had on European equities, on dividend and value strategies? So I think this is another question where we also, in unprecedented territory if we if we take the dividends um so dividends have been cut about 25 percent if we look at the european markets which is significant and it is actually more than what we saw during the the great financial crisis of 2008 and 9 where dividends in europe was cut about 17 percent if you look at the derivatives market, the dividend futures actually pricing in a significantly higher cut of around 50%, which I think is too aggressive. So the, the, the actual uh, dividend cut is probably going to be somewhere between the, the cut so far of the 25 and the 50% uh, cut, so somewhere between that. And perhaps it's worth to give you some background here uh, in terms of what we've actually seen. So there's been dividend cuts across the board, but I think overall three sectors account for the majority, about 75% of the cuts. So it's financials led by the banks, it's consumer discretionaries led by autos and retails, and industrials uh, led by areas such as transportation that have made most of the cuts in Europe. And I think the reasons, uh, I'll put it into four buckets. Uh, one bucket is the fundamental reasons, either because of a lack of ability to pay, because of uh, the current situation, or a basic prudence to protect the balance sheet. Uh, the second reason is the regulation. I think this is the case for, for many of the banks. Uh, and third reason is, is, is a new one, I think, uh, pressure from stakeholders. Uh, and perhaps we can come back to this later, but I think the area of ESG is, is even more important now. And I think we are seeing a lot of stakeholders, whether unions, employees, other stakeholders, asserting some kind of pressure. Then the last uh, reason for the dividend cuts is more technical in nature, which is basically that the virus has meant that many companies can't actually physically hold their AGMs and approve the dividend payment. So, so how do we think about this? Uh, I think um, the, the, in the past, uh, dividends were tools to remunerate shareholders and communicate to shareholders in the market. And I think what might be different uh, going, going forward is that while dividend will continue to be 
a means to remunerate shareholders, I think the communication aspects will no longer just be for, for shareholders and for market, but also for the broader audience of stakeholders in society, employees, suppliers, uh, government regulators. And I think because of this, I think that we should expect uh, that the dividends will be more volatile and more pro-cyclical, uh, given this important sensitivity. So I think this is this is important. I think it's the dividend story uh, in Europe is not over. The capacity of uh, most of these companies to continue to pay dividends uh, continues to be be there. Um, so I think this, which is one of the key attractions, um, is still around. What what have we done in the portfolios? I think within financials, we tend to prefer the insurance companies, uh, stronger fundamentals, and also less pressure on the dividends. I think the areas of healthcare, telecoms, and utilities are very strong defensive sectors, which offer good dividend protection. Uh, I think what we have a debate is around energy, which is a good dividend sector historically, um, and one which is under significant pressure because of the oil crisis. But I mean, if we look at our current dividend strategies in, in Europe, we still have an implied dividend yield of about 5%. So I think it is still quite attractive. Okay, thank you very much. And I think uh, it will be interesting also uh, to discuss that further uh, in another call uh, because the dividend question uh, that uh, is uh, really on the table at the moment may be also um, something that we shall think about in more broader terms uh, on how, in, at the end of the day, uh, capital is going to be uh, remunerated uh, out of this crisis, uh, which I think uh, is a complex uh, story that we will need to dig in a little further. Uh, but uh, before uh, we uh, close the call, Casper, you started to mention something uh, very important and very important uh, at Amundi, um, uh, which is uh, ESG, uh, because uh, before the crisis, uh, uh, ESG uh, was uh, progressively becoming, I would say, a dominant theme. Uh, theme. Uh, I think we've published a number of analyses showing the impact of the ESG factor uh, on equity prices, notably at European level. We will probably are going to well, we're going to make an update of that pretty soon showing that uh, ESG funds have been more resilient both in terms of flows and in terms also of performances at European level uh, since uh, the crisis so how do you see uh, the uh, ESG themes uh, out of this crisis when it comes to European equities uh, do you think uh, this will be uh, put aside because there will be other uh, more urgent issues to be dealt with, or do you think that uh, it's going to be even more an important story afterwards? So I'll, I'll make a bold uh, statement here towards the end. I think ESG will be more important as a result of the current crisis. Uh, I also think that European corporates are best positioned globally with regards to this. Uh, one element to show this increasing focus and scrutiny uh, on the way companies uh, are behaving during this crisis. Uh, this is something that we have not seen to this extent before. A scrutiny and focus by stakeholders, but also by shareholders like us, uh, on how uh, companies treat their employees and suppliers and local communities, whether they pay their taxes and generally act responsibly. I think unlike the last crisis, you've seen governments such as the French and the Danish uh, explicitly stating that they will not bail out companies that are registered or have subsidiaries in, in tax havens. 
So I think this whole wave is 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 uh, is, is is there, and I think it's 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 getting more global in nature. Be, if you look at the move by the U.S. Business Roundtable, which is a very interesting influential uh, trade body of top executives that last year dropped the shareholder primacy uh, as the purpose of the corporation to instead urge companies to focus on the environment and workers and acting ethically as well. I think the the S factor, the social factor uh, will become increasingly uh, important. It's very clear that uh, topics such as income inequality and access to healthcare are important. And if anything, these crises has put more pressure uh, from society on uh, coming up with solutions. So, I mean, for Amundi, this has always been been a focus and one of the founding pillars. But I think for society in general, this is growing. So, back to the uh, statement about ESG leadership in Europe. I think this is significant, and I think it's a leadership that has been built up over many years, in some cases uh, decades and stem back from pressure from stakeholders, governments, and consumers regarding ESG topics, which have then driven companies uh, to focus on, on research and innovation in this area. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so there was an oil crisis in the 70s. Uh, the Danish government, uh, as one example, wanted to reduce their reliance on oil, which at the time was 90% of their energy consumption. So they facilitated conditions for corporate sector to be developed within renewables, especially wind energy. And today they have uh, global leaderships, the corporate sector in wind turbine technology. There are other examples such as uh, waste handling with reverse vending machines in Norway, with uh, energy efficiency for buildings and machinery, creating uh, global leaders in continental Europe of Germany and France. So I think ESG will be more important, not less important as a result of this. And I think European companies stand in a really, really good position on this. So perhaps the only negative side that we sometimes see when we have recessions is that there's a risk that uh, some of the focus perhaps outside of Europe on these topics temporarily gets less politically attention. So I think there is a risk perhaps that environmental regulation some places will be rolled back as companies uh, are allowed to focus on, on growth. Uh, but I think this would be a temporary uh, situation, if at all. So I think to conclude, the ESG challenges that we are faced with are growing. Uh, it will take a lot to solve them, and I think companies do play a part. And I think many of the European companies have built expertise and technology in addressing these energy efficiency, renewables, and waste recycling. And I think these solutions uh, could find uh, global markets. Thanks very much, Kat, uh, uh, and uh, I think uh, it's a very strong conviction that you're giving us uh, before the weekend, and probably it's going to be interesting also to see uh, how progressively uh, the contribution of the different ESG factors, the SDEDG, uh, uh, may evolve uh, in uh, the post-crisis environment, but I'm pretty sure that we will have more time to discuss that further. Based on that, I would like to thank you both, Monica and Casper, uh, for uh, your comments, advice, uh, and I would say reflections for our clients uh, and uh, colleagues around. Uh, and based on that, I wish you all the safest weekend possible. Bye-bye.
This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.